Pulling up to Mickey D's just for drinks? Oh yeah, that's me. Nothing extra, just perfection and a straw. Coming in hot for the coldest cups on the block. Because there are drinks. Then there are drinks from McDonald's. Mix things up with any size lemonade or sweet tea for $1.49. Perfect with our classic fries. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. We will get to our story in a moment, but first, I wanted to update all of you on what is coming out this week. We will be releasing another Ohio Mysteries, Ohio.com, and Acker Beacon Journal crossover about an unresolved case. We have covered this case in the past, but this time, we get to talk to the family members and hear what they have to say on this tragic cold case. Definitely stay tuned for that. Also, what a fantastic story we released Wednesday. I never knew about Paper Towns, and to think that it had to do with the college rivalry between Michigan and Ohio State. If you have any feedback on this episode, send us an email at feedback at ohiomysteries.com. Now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with us, as always, is our award-winning journalist who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories with the Akron Beacon Journal, Paula Schleiss. Hi, everybody. Gerald Robert Hand has so far avoided execution for 20 years. Originally slated to be put to death by the state of Ohio in 2003, Appeals and reprieves have moved it now to 2026. But even if and when it happens, it will not be for all that he is suspected of doing. At the age of 54, Hand was found guilty of the death of his fourth wife, Jill, in their Delaware County home, as well as for the murder of the man he hired to kill her. What has been alleged, but cannot be proven, is that he'd also had his first and second wives murdered by the same man. Though this story is still an active one, we need to start this tale more than half a century ago. The year was 1968, and Gerald Hand, he went by the name Bob, married for the first time. Her name was Donna Anderson. 
The couple lived in Columbus on Eureka Avenue, and Hand worked for his father's radiator business until he was drafted for a tour of duty in Vietnam. Soon after his return in 1971, the marriage was on the rocks. Bob and Donna suffered together a few more years, but Donna kept telling her family she'd made a terrible mistake and she wanted out of the marriage. On March the 24th, 1976, the marriage ended tragically. Bob called police to say he'd found his wife dead in the basement of their home. He said he'd been to the gym and came home to find her on the floor, a plastic dry cleaner's bag pulled over her head and tied with a spark plug wire. Police found her body at the foot of the stairs, and an autopsy revealed the 27-year-old Donna had been hit on the head several times before the suffocation that ended her life. There was no forced entry, but a few drawers and a bedroom dresser had been disturbed. The crime scene gave the appearance of a burglary gone bad, and Bob had a solid alibi at the YMCA. With no solid evidence pointing to any suspect, the case went cold. Strangely, though the coroner ruled her death a homicide, detectives continued to insist she had killed herself, saying her position at the foot of the stairs indicated she was originally hanging from the door at the top of the stairs and that her body came loose and fell down the steps. They went on to describe the woman as a 200-pound weightlifter and that nobody would have been able to lift her into a hanging position on that door. The coroner continued to defend his ruling, saying marks on her body were consistent with murder and the ligature position on her neck could not have been self-inflicted. But police continued to believe their own theory and stopped looking for a killer. Donna had a life insurance policy on her, and Bob collected the equivalent of $78,000. He was even given an additional $50,000 from a state-operated victim compensation fund. After that, he quickly moved on. Slightly more than a year after his first wife's death, Bob was married again. In June of 1977, Bob and a 19-year-old Lori Willis exchanged I do's and, incredibly, settled into the same Columbus house where Donna had been killed. Lori didn't seem put out by the ghost of her predecessor. Soon after their marriage, Lori was pregnant and gave Bob his only child, a son named Robbie. But just three years later, this marriage was going to end almost exactly like the first. On September the 9th, 1979, Lori was planning to host a baby shower at her house. But when her mom showed up at 9.30 a.m. to help her prepare, nobody answered the door. So she scribbled out a note and left it on the door. 
Bob had already left with the baby and Lori's brother that gone out to look at flea markets and car shows. Lori's mom returned to the house about 11 a.m., and this time the door was open. She heard music playing inside. The note that she had scribbled saying she'd be back was laying on the ground. She went inside, called out to her daughter, but the calls went unanswered. She checked every room in the house but the basement. She refused to go downstairs since Bob's first wife had died down there. Instead, she picked up the phone and called Bob's family for help. Bob's brother ran over to the house. He walked into the basement and he found Lori dead. And just like Donna, her head was wrapped in a plastic bag, though unlike Donna, she had also been shot twice. The coroner determined it was the suffocation that killed her, that the bullets had been fired into a lifeless body. Friends and family told authorities Lori wasn't happy in her marriage, and she had been discussing the issue of divorce. Bob insisted their issues were minor and that they were working it out, that they were still deeply in love. News reports at the time brought up the crazy coincidence that a man could have two wives strangled to death with plastic bags in the same basement. They also reported this really strange thing, that the wife of Bob's brother had died just a few months after his first wife, a death that was ruled suicide by overdose. And then there was this little detail. Bob had taken out a life insurance policy. For Lori, he received the equivalent of about $126,000. Now, Bob was a suspect. How could he not be? But there was never enough evidence to charge or arrest him. He had an alibi. There were no fingerprints pointing this way or that, no DNA that they could rely on. And so Columbus investigators once again were left with only suspicions as Bob took a third wife. This one survived the marriage. Her name was Glenna, and little about their marriage is known, but it did last a few years before it ended in divorce. Glenna was the one that got away. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. In 1992, Bob Hand married a fourth time. Jill Randolph was a widow with three grown children. She worked at the state BMV and was financially set with her own house. 
The two dated a few months before they married and moved into Jill's home. She lived just north of Columbus, in Delaware County's Genoa Township, on Walnut Street. Bob was still in the auto radiator repair business, and now co-owner of his dad's old shop, Hilltop Radiator, on Sullivan Avenue in Columbus. But the store wasn't making any money. Jill soon discovered he'd racked up more than $200,000 in credit card debt, including on a card that he'd taken out in her name without her knowledge. Jill wrote her sister that she feared for her safety and that she wanted a divorce. By that time, she and Bob had been married nearly a decade. In January of 2002, Bob called police to report a man had broken into their home, shot his wife, and that he had shot the intruder in self-defense. The home intruder turned out to be a man named Walter Welsh, who went by the name Lonnie. Police arrived to find this 55-year-old Lonnie lying face down in the driveway of a neighbor. Inside the house, they found 58-year-old Jill, dressed in her nightgown and lying on the floor between the living room and the kitchen. A pathologist would determine Jill died from a single gunshot wound to the middle of her forehead. Lonnie had been shot five times, the bullet in his chest, the lethal shot. Bob gave detectives a pair of thirty-eight caliber revolvers that he said he used to shoot the intruder. He told detectives he didn't know who the man was. But later, on the way to the hospital, Bob pointed out the intruder's vehicle to a paramedic and said that car looked like it belonged to someone who once worked for him. At the hospital, Bob answered a volley of questions. He said he returned home around 6.45 p.m. and that he and Jill had dinner. He said after they finished eating, he left the table and went into the bathroom. That's when he heard Jill scream his name. As he hurried out of the bathroom, he heard two gunshots, then saw a man in a red and black flannel shirt standing in his hallway. Bob said he immediately ran to collect his handguns from the master bedroom and then went to confront the intruder. He said he and the intruder exchanged gunfire in the hall and that he chased the man out the front door, still firing as the assailant ran toward his car, collapsing in his neighbor's driveway before he could make it. Bob repeated that he did not recognize the gunman, but after detectives revealed his name, Bob said, oh, he did know him, that he was a man who had done odd jobs around the shop, though he hadn't seen him for a year and didn't know him very well. He told the cops the guy was a thief and a cocaine addict and had no reason to be at his home that night. Back at the crime scene, investigators analyzed the blood spatter, the location of the guns, including one found outside on the lawn, a black jacket found on the front stoop, a knit hat with eye and mouth holes, and a tooth near the front door. But the most startling piece of evidence was a photograph. 
It was a picture taken during Bob and Jill's wedding and standing right next to Bob as his best man was the intruder Lonnie Welsh. Bob had already been changing his story several times and it changed yet again. Okay, he said, Lonnie was a former employee, but he insisted he barely knew the guy and that he only stepped in in his best man because he happened to be there and Bob's own brother had failed to show for the wedding. Lonnie Welsh, of course, couldn't vouch for any of this. But Lonnie's family was talking. They said Bob and Lonnie were friends and had been friends for 30 years. As a matter of fact, they said Lonnie did indeed seem to have a lot of spare cash around the time of Lori's death. They remembered it because he had never held a steady job. And then there was this. Lonnie Welsh's brother told police that in the late summer of 2001, Lonnie had asked him if he knew where to get a gun, that Bob had hired him to kill Jill. That December, Lonnie was picked up for a traffic violation that actually landed him in jail, and Lonnie's brother went to Bob to ask for money to help Lonnie make bail. The brother told police that Bob told him, no, no, he he couldn't help with bail because he and Lonnie had a business arrangement and they couldn't be seen having contact with each other. Investigators said they also learned that while Lonnie was in jail for that traffic violation, that he tried to hire a cellmate as a driver for $5,000, saying he needed help for a job coming up a job in which he'd been hired to take somebody out for a guy named Bob. Police thought they had the guy responsible for Jill's death. Even Columbus investigators were helping Delaware authorities with everything they had about the murders of the first two wives. But they still needed a strong motive, so they began to pour over Bob Hand's financial history. They learned Bob had sold his radiator shop two years earlier for $300,000. And he had received another $170,000 for inventory and some other undetermined things. And yet, bills were going unpaid. Bob finally acknowledged that he had hid all that money from the sale because he wanted to file for bankruptcy. It was a gambit his wife was opposed to. Still, there was one bill that was paid promptly every time. The life insurance policy on Jill. Bob stood to gain more than $1 million from her death. And then police got a second jailhouse confession. This one, a man named Kenneth Grimes Jr., a cellmate of Bob at the Delaware County Jail. Grimes said Bob told him he'd hired a man to kill his wife for $25,000, but that the man wanted to double the price. And so Bob, in his own words, killed two birds with one stone 
and was mighty happy not to have had to pay anyone off. Between the solid motive, the testimony from Lonnie's family, and those jailhouse confessions, prosecutors felt they had enough to take Bob Hand's case to a jury. They charged him with the murders of Jill Hand and Lonnie Welsh. The trial began on May 8, 2003, and it lasted nearly a month as prosecutors weaved a complicated story that spanned decades. Though the defense argued against it, prosecutors were allowed to bring up the murders of Bob's first two wives because their deaths tied into the theory of the motive. They were arguing that Lonnie was killed because in demanding more money from Bob, he was threatening to reveal his role in those murders. It was enough for the jury. On June the 4th, Bob Hand was found guilty on two counts of aggravated murder. The jury could have recommended life in prison, and Bob's son, then 25-year-old Robbie, pleaded for his father's life to be spared, saying, He's the only person I have left to guide me. But the jury recommended death, and that's how the judge sentenced him. It was the first capital murder conviction in Delaware County's history. Appeals have kept this case alive for 20 years. Last fall, Ohio Governor Mike DeWine gave Hand a reprieve for three more years, moving his execution date from this coming May to June of 2026. The state said it was having trouble getting the necessary execution drugs. So it remains to be seen if it will be carried out at all. But even if it is, it won't be for the murders of Donna Anderson and Lori Willis, two cases that seem destined to remain technically unsolved forever. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news clippings, and more on this case and all of our past cases, head on over to ohiomysteries.com. And also check out KillerPodcasts.com. There you will find more podcasts just like ours. We are proud to be part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hey Hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon.